Um, I remember when I first watched The Cove, I was four, 14, 14 or 15, I think, uh, first semester of freshman year of high school. Um, it was part of my biology class. The Cove is a documentary about the dolphin killings of Taiji, Japan. Um, and I just, I remember the class just falling silent um, when we watched the movie. I mean, it was like, what, a classroom of a bunch of freshmen. And it was absolutely silent. You could hear a pin drop. Um, divers had put up cameras at the bottom of the cove that these dolphins were herded into. Um, and the cameras captured some really graphic footage of the slaughter. Whaling is illegal in most of the world, but not all of it. Norway, Iceland, and Japan still practice it readily. Enforcing laws and regulations in these countries around whaling practices proves ridiculously difficult for policymakers and conservationists alike. Whaling companies often have significant financial incentives to continue their practices, making regulatory changes a sensitive and complex matter. But unfortunately, this is not a problem that we can just ignore. Today, I'm going to be talking to a man who has particular expertise in this area of marine conservation. Marine conservation, it's a subject that I have been passionate about my entire life. As a child, I was always, you know, super inquisitive and always out and about in nature and on the beach and in rock pools and in the sea and in the forests and the woods, looking at everything. My name's Ed Goodall and I work for Whale and Dolphin Conservation. Uh, and I am our Head of Intergovernmental Engagement, which is a, quite a complicated job title, I suppose. Uh, but it means I oversee all of our uh, international policy engagement across various different multilateral environmental agreements and try and tweak them so that they uh, benefit um, marine mammals and whales and dolphins. There are quite a lot of challenges uh, in this particular role and, and overcoming them can take uh, a long, a long time and, and you have to kind of chip away at them from various different angles. But probably the biggest challenges for us is really the kind of ingrained ways of thinking and those kind of things that people have always done uh, and that kind of real resistance to change. On subjects like whaling in particular, Conservationists like Ed face the daunting task of not only advocating for policy changes, but also fostering a cultural shift towards sustainable practices. And along with the mounting evidence that points against the prolonged practice of whaling, there are also huge moral implications that surround the continuation of whaling in the modern world. You know, we know with whales and dolphins, they're really suffering uh, and uh, they're very similar to us uh, and the things that we're doing to them. You know, we just, we really shouldn't be with what we know about them um, and what we know about ourselves at this point in time. Dolphins and whales are some of the smartest animal species on Earth. From communicating with others in their pod, to forming hunting strategies, to expressing grief, researchers are beginning to learn more and more how complex dolphins and whales truly are. Intelligence is defined as the ability to solve complex problems or make decisions with outcomes benefiting the decision maker. And while their intelligence might look different from ours, it is undeniable that whales and dolphins are extremely intelligent animals. So, why do we keep killing them? It's really that kind of resistance to change, which I think is probably fairly similar across the whole the conservation and environmental movement. And I think overcoming them, uh, it's, it's context specific. Um, so you need to get into the 
the mindset and really understand the the motivations and the histories and the, and the cultures of these people that you're trying to bring along with you and bring them into 2023 and what we know so it requires us to to think in different ways and and really engage with and work within and embed ourselves into those communities uh, so that we can really work together but you know that that's that's challenging in itself you need to do that in a respectful way um and really just go in from a point of listening and understanding to start off with so that means it can take time to build to build trust and understanding um with all these kind of different new audiences and you have to think about the different they're different motivators for why why they might want to change and how we can kind of bring them bring them along uh, so that we're we're having wins for whales and dolphins and the rest of nature that can be sort of showing them alternative futures where they can still continue to interact with with nature um but in a more harmonious way so it's transitioning to new new ways of doing things new gear types you know the the seasonality of um uh fishing or interacting in particular waters where uh, whales and dolphins are, are present and kind of doing that at times when they're when they're not around uh, can be helpful so but yeah there's there's 92 different species of, of whales and dolphins all around the world and lots of different subpopulations as well so uh and the the it it can be quite sad a lot of the time unfortunately talking about them because there's so many different threats uh and they vary all over the place so but i think that common thread uh of of challenge when tackling each of them is that sort of resistance to change and that mentality of well this is the way we've always done it Incorporating lasting conservation changes in communities can prove to be a difficult and slow process. But what happens when the problems are time sensitive, like climate change, or the biodiversity crisis, or whaling? There is no silver bullet to it. Again, it's context specific and what you can do and what you can achieve. And this is something that is a thread for me personally. It's kind of addressing what you're able to and not being overwhelmed with the 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 seriousness of the whole crisis itself because it's so overbearing and we're all just clever primates really living in this really complex world uh, and de dealing with such an insidious problem as climate change and biodiversity loss is, is impossible for us all to to kind of tackle as individuals so it, it's breaking it down and some of the things that I work on are these big international agreements which can bring in change quite rapidly uh, in a policy sense. So, you know, not immediately in terms of it, a, de a decision is made and then the next day everybody has to start working differently. Uh, but things like the global biodiversity framework. This framework, adopted in December of 2022 during COP15, also known as the United Nations Biodiversity Conference, is a plan that outlines worldwide actions to protect and sustainably manage nature over the next decade. It was a really major moment where the world kind of came together and all countries that are signatory to that convention, which is every country in the world apart from two, agreed uh, to a set of targets and goals that we need to achieve by 2030. And that was really a massive watershed moment uh, where everybody just kind of drew a line under all of the arguments and things that we've had uh 
to date when talking about biodiversity and said, right, these are the things that we have to do. And they're real stretch targets. Some of them we're probably not going to meet. Uh, and some countries might do really, really well. For, you know, countries like Costa Rica are already kind of met half of those targets already, which is incredible. So there are those big uh, environmental uh, agreements where we can bring in change quite rapidly as well, but there is the ability for smaller subsections of society to move a lot faster. You know, when you're talking from an individual country level, unfortunately, a lot of the time you're constrained by electoral cycles uh, and what governments are able to do within the kind of specific windows of four or five years. And there's really only a window of two or three years in the middle of that where you're able to kind of do some meaningful stuff and then you're back into an electoral cycle. So individual countries and governments can do some stuff for a short period of time, but not always. But then there's the world of business, which is not constrained by any of those things. And businesses and capitalism, you know, it has been a, a huge driver for some of the uh, bad things that have happened in the world. But really now we're seeing a lot of businesses wake up to the... Um, the real threats to their existence from from climate and you know all of the impacts throughout their whole supply chains and what makes them valuable as businesses so they're realizing that they really need to to tackle these things and they can work on much longer time frames over the course of decades and and change things quite quickly and so there are these kind of different levers and it's kind of all part of a big stretching elastic band between um multilateral environment agreements, governments and, and business. But politicians and businesses aren't the only ones who can make change. On an individual level as well within countries, uh, communities can decide to do things really, really quickly. Uh, and it, that's fantastic. Like, you know, I've heard of projects in recent times of communities just buying buying huge swathes of land and old farms when they come up for at the end of their tenancy agreements or they come up for sale. And then really you can make a change very, very quickly and start returning um, natural practices to those areas, start to rewild uh, and things can just happen really. That's probably the quickest way of making things happen, which is really exciting. But while these changes in the biodiversity framework are incredible wins for the world of conservation, unfortunately, not everyone is on board with changing stuff around. In the far north of the Atlantic Ocean, halfway between Greenland and the UK, lies Iceland. Iceland is home to the Blue Lagoon, has one of the oldest languages in Europe, and is often considered the safest country in the world. Ironically, they are also home to one of the last whaling companies. I guess they're not the safest country in the world for whales. To set it in a bit of context, so Iceland is a country that has um, continued to hunt whales um, following the uh, the moratorium on commercial whaling, which came in in 1986. All countries that were that are parties to the International Whaling Commission agreed to a moratorium to stop commercial whaling because whale numbers had been obliterated around the world and we were really, really at risk of um, losing them forever. After, um, after watching The Cove, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I had nightmares. Um, you know, I, I've always loved the ocean, loved dolphins and whales, um, and it was horrifying, horrifying to see what was happening to them. Um, the way that um, these hunters would 
um, kind of trap and tra trap the dolphins in the cove is they would line boats around the pod um, and then stick uh, metal poles into the water um, and hammer on the poles. Um, what that would do is would kind of create this wall of sound um, that um, would scare the dolphins. And so the dolphins would swim away from the sound um, and the boats would close in and basically would herd them into the cove. Um, and that is where they would kill them, either kill them or um, capture them for theme parks in Japan. Um, but what was really horrifying for me to see at 14 years old was the footage um, from the underwater cameras at the bottom of the cove of the water just slowly turning from blue to red as, um, as the dolphins were killed. It's one of those documentaries that's incredibly hard to watch, but incredibly important because, you know, the reason why these problems persist is because they're swept under the rug, right? Because no one wants to talk about how over 500 dolphins and whales are killed in Taiji alone every season, or that a minimum of 300,000 dolphins and whales are killed every year, or that Japan, Norway, and Iceland have killed nearly, um, I think it's 40,000 um, large whales since commercial whaling was banned in, in 1986. And so uh, the moratorium came in, but uh, there were three countries that uh, decided that they didn't wish to abide by this. And so they, they took out reservations and exceptions to the moratorium and continued to hunt whales. And one of those countries was, was Iceland, and they started um, exploiting a, an unfortunate loophole uh, initially. So they started scientific whaling which was uh, kind of um, the, the, the way that they explained it was that they were hunting whales for scientific purposes to, to find out more about them and their life histories and whatever. But then, funnily enough, they would end up, once they were done with their, uh, in inverted commas, science, sell the products of those whales. So in effect, they were still commercially whaling. Uh, and then later on, uh, they just decided to that, that that wasn't really very good cover. So they carried on commercially whaling and they've been doing that for a few years now. Uh, and it's still uh, going on, but there's there's only one company in Iceland that is still doing it, a company called Hovella, run by uh, a man named Christian Lofsson, who is really the last whaler in, in Iceland. And the boats that they use are really, really old uh, and the crews are not really uh, trained very well at, at all. Uh, and we've been charting their their practices for for many many years in partnership with um, other NGOs and uh, local people and organisations in Iceland. And particularly during the 2022 summer whaling season, we uncovered some horrible horrible welfare atrocities uh, where some whales. There was one individual that took up to two hours to die after being hit by several of these explosive grenade harpoons, which they used to kill them. You know, we're never going to um, exterminate eating animals from uh, human culture, but if you're going to eat them uh, or kill them or use them for whatever purposes uh, you wish, we really need to be ensuring that those animals are not suffering. And and the kind of things that we were uncovering, that was the worst example, but there were, there were multiple other whales that were hit by multiple harpoons uh, and took hours to die. And it's just... 
it's not on really um and so that combined with knowledge that's coming out in recent years on the ecosystem importance of whales uh, and the contribution to them positively to local economies if you keep them alive to things like whale watching there's a booming whale watching industry in iceland but all hope is not lost for the whales that frequent icelandic waters and so the government earlier on this year at the start of the 2023 season uh, it was either the day before or two days before the season was due to start, the government uh, of Iceland announced uh, a two-month ban on whaling in Iceland, which was, um, we didn't know exactly that that was going to happen, but, you know, there were crazy scenes in our office when that was announced, and um, it saved the lives of of over 100 whales um, in Iceland. While dolphin and whale conservation is definitely moving in the right direction in Iceland, Whaling is not gone yet. Unfortunately, that ban didn't cover the whole uh, of the summer uh, because they gave the opportunity to the whalers to tweak their methods potentially so that, you know, they weren't um, in contravention of the animal welfare regulation and they had the opportunity to to improve their methods. Uh, and so they allowed them to um, go out for the final months. And, you know, in those two months, we were really heavily lobbying and uh, campaigning for that ban to be extended. Uh, but unfortunately, it wasn't. They did go out and they killed 20 something whales. I can't remember the exact number. But even the fir- in the first few days, um, there was whales that were taking half an hour to die. They were killing pregnant females, uh, which they're not supposed to do. And so, again, they were just really in contravention of of multiple animal welfare uh, aspects and legislations. That came to an end at the end of September, but we're really at a critical point now uh, in Iceland because they they grant their whaling licenses in five-year blocks, and this year is the end of a five-year block. And so the government will issue a new license, or potentially not, for a new five-year quota to that company by the end of this year. So that could be a new huge policy win, and it would be um, a a majorly um, symbolic win uh, for conservation if we can end whaling in Iceland, which could happen this year if the minister decides to not grant that company a new five-year license. And why is whaling still prevalent in Iceland? You'll probably never guess the reason. There's no local demand, and we've we've seen over the years um, that this meat is going to Japan, but then it's not even being used for human consumption a lot of the time. It's being used in things like pet food. And so we're killing these incredible, majestic, incredible creatures for our pets to eat. Whales are some of the most massive and majestic creatures on Earth. They are some of the largest animals on this planet, create some of the most captivating songs, and hold an intelligence that we will never fully understand. In this past year, Ed had the incredible opportunity to see some of them in the wild for the very first time. So yeah, I was feeling like a bit of a fraud because I work for whale and dolphin conservation, but I'd never actually seen a whale in the wild. And, you know, working in this world, you're surrounded by people who've spent their lives studying and working with them and working on their behalf. Uh, and so I finally had the opportunity to go and see them. And so we were we were on a boat heading out to the location of where these whales were feeding. And I, you know, I, I would have been happy if I saw a whale from a mile away and I just saw it, it its blow when it comes to the surface. Uh, but we got there and within about two minutes of the boat arriving at this location, uh, something like 12 or 13 humpback whales all emerged from the water at the same time. 
uh, and I, I just immediately cried. Um, it was just absolutely incredible. And, you know, for many people, when they see whales and dolphins, it is a life-changing experience. But to see 12 of them all come out of the water, because they're all bubble net feeding together at the same time, which is a, a kind of, um, it's a technique where they work together. They're, they're usually solitary creatures. Some of them spend time with each other, but some of them come together as groups and they all know each other and they return to these areas to work together every year. Uh, to feed and just seeing 12 of them all come out of the water at the same time was just unbelievable. Whaling in the modern world is not gone yet, but as we build more awareness and keep making noise about the importance of these majestic animals, I believe that one day everyone will know that whales are worth more alive than dead. As famously stated by Jacques Cousteau, the sea, once it casts its spell, holds one in its net of wonder forever. To learn more about the work of whale and dolphin conservation and to support their continued efforts to protect these amazing creatures, visit whales.org. This is Stories of the Blue World. I'm your host, Olivia Grace Barnes. Thanks for listening.